invite you to bow our heads as we begin with prayer. Let's ask the Holy Spirit that he'll be our teacher tonight. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we're so thankful that because you live, we have the promised assurance that we will live too for eternity. Thank you so much, Lord, that Jesus makes it possible. Thank you so much, Lord, for giving us your word that teaches us not only how to live here, but how to live for eternity. Lord, as we open your word tonight, again, we pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us, that you remove every earthly distraction, that you would give us an attentive mind, a soft and sensitive spirit, an open heart, that we would not only be hearers and readers of your word, but that the seed of your word would take root into our hearts and bear fruit in our lives, that we might be doers and followers as well. So Lord, please speak to us. Lord, I ask that you'd hide me behind the cross. May Jesus be seen and known and heard tonight. This is our prayer, and we ask this in Christ's blessed name. Amen. Amen. Our subject matter for tonight is one that is so very relevant. We're talking about Revelation's answer for global peace. And indeed, as we look at the condition of our world, we see that our world lacks peace. There is instability and chaos and corruption and just a bunch of craziness happening all over the place. We live in a world of international unrest, economic instability, political corruption, moral decay, natural disasters and terrorism and all of these things. And we find that man's plans for peace don't work. They're temporal at best, futile at worst. And the question is asked, why is our world so fragile? Why is it that our plans for peace are so futile? And we're not just talking about world peace in a general sense, but we're also talking about personal peace. There are many marriages that don't have peace. Many homes that are broken and dysfunctional and there is no peace. Many hearts that are restless. There's no peace. Why is that? Well, friends, the Bible gives us an answer in the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verses 3 through verse 6. I want you to write this scripture down and notice with me on the screen. It talks about a time in Israel's past when there was no peace in the land. And it gives us the reason. Notice what it says here in 2 Chronicles 15, verse 3 to 6. For a long time Israel had been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. And in those times there was what? No peace, but great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the lands. So nation was destroyed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. In this passage, we read how there was a time in Israel's history that God's people tried to live without God, without the teachings of God, and without the law of God. And as a result of that, there was no peace, only turmoil and destruction and adversity and affliction. And that, my friends, is a microcosm of what's happening worldwide because today mankind is trying to live without God. We're trying to live without God's teachings, and we're trying to live our lives without God's law. And no wonder why there's no peace. 
The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 20 and 21, it says, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the who? For the wicked. And friends, another word for wicked is lawlessness. There is no peace to those who live lives of lawlessness. No peace. And friends, because of that, in these last days, God is sending a worldwide message that helps us to see how we can obtain the true peace from heaven. This message is found in the book of Revelation. It is Revelation's answer for global peace. And so notice with me in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Now, we don't have the time to dissect this whole passage in detail, but I want to just explain it very quickly. Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7, we read the final message of mercy that comes from heaven to the earth from God. And I want you to notice what it says. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven. And that word angel in the Greek is the word angelos. It simply denotes a messenger. So a heavenly messenger having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. I encourage you to open your Bibles, uh, especially if we have issues with the slides. We're working on that, I'm sure. But it says having the everlasting gospel. The everlasting what? And that word gospel means good news. It doesn't mean bad news. It doesn't mean scary news. It means good news. So, friends, what we're about to study tonight is a good news message. And because it's good news, we ought to get excited about it. Amen? Right now, you should be getting excited by faith, even though we're not sure where we're. Start getting excited, friends. We're about to study some good news. And the recipients of this good news message is the whole world. It says it's preached to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So this is a global good news message. And the reason why it's sent to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people is because God so loved the world. He's not willing that any should perish. He want, wants everyone to have an opportunity to hear this good news message because it brings us peace. And the Lord said in Jeremiah 29, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So listen to Revelation's answer for global peace. It's given to the whole world. What is this message? Next verse, verse 7. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. My friends, we're living in a time of judgment. And in this solemn time in these last days, God is sending a worldwide message calling us to fear God. And friends, those two words, fear God, is Revelation's answer for global peace. For when we can understand what the Bible means when it says fear God, we will discover how we can experience global and personal peace in our lives. Now, so what, is, what, is it, what does it mean to fear God? Many people think that to fear God means to be afraid of God, but no, friends, God does not want us to be afraid of Him. You see, to fear God is an old English expression that simply means to respect God. To do what? And to reverence God. To do what? And we can only respect and reverence Him if we love Him. And we can only love Him when we get to know Him. 
So to fear God, really, friends, is an invitation to enter into a relationship with God that's based on love, respect, and reverence. To respect and reverence God and all of His ways because His ways are best. And He has our best interest in mind all of the time. Now, I want you to notice what is the result of fearing God. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, write it down. The Bible tells us, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His what? Commandments, for this is the whole duty of the Jews. Is that what it says? The whole duty of what? Man, and that's not only talking about the males, it's talking about mankind. It's talking about all of humanity. So the Bible tells us here that when we truly fear God, that is to respect God and reverence the ways of God because we love God, it will result in the keeping of the commandments of God. God's commandments is His will for us. The Bible says in Psalms 40 verse 8, write that down, here's extra. Psalms 40 verse 8, it says, I delight. To do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. Some people find it difficult to try to figure out what God's will is, but that verse tells us plainly what God's will is. His will is for us to allow Him to write His law in our hearts. That's the new covenant promise, friends. When we have it in our heart, it's something that we delight to do. That word delight is a positive word. It's not a negative one. And so if we truly fear God because we love Him, we're going to keep His commandments. And notice what the result will be when we keep the commandments of the Lord. The Bible gives us this beautiful promise in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 2. It says, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. Then notice what happens. For length of days and long life and what? Peace shall they add to thee. The Bible says that when we love God and keep His law from our heart, our days will be lengthened, our lives will be increased, and we will have peace. This is Revelation's answer for global peace, as well as personal peace, to allow the Lord to fulfill the new covenant promise in our hearts. Here's another beautiful promise. Psalms 119, verse 165, it says, Great peace. Have they which do what? Love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. My friends, God not only wants to give us peace, He wants to give us great peace. Oh, friends, how many of you like great peace in your life? Amen? You know what great peace is? It's different from the, de the worldly definition of peace. You know, the world's definition of peace is absence of war. When there's no war, they say that's peace. But great peace is peace during the war. In other words, things can be going crazy all around you, and yet you still have peace. You see, the Lord has the power to calm the storm, and He does that. But sometimes He allows the storm to rage on, but what He does always promise is to calm us in the midst of that storm. Amen? We can be going through financial struggles, health issues, losing our loved ones to death, issues in our home, and yet we still can have peace if we have God's law in our hearts. And not only that, it says nothing shall offend them. You see, when we have God's law of love written in our hearts, like the new covenant promises, we're going to have great peace, and we're not going to be so easily offended. 
In other words, if we're driving down the highway and someone cuts us off rudely, if we have God's law in our hearts, we're not going to be offended. We're not going to respond by, you know, waving that universal sign. (laughs) We're just going to smile and pray and praise the Lord. Amen? That's what God wants us to experience. You see, friends, God's law is His divine blueprint as to how to live in peace, peace with God and peace with one another. Now, you'll find it interesting, friends, that it's been estimated that mankind has, has made over 35 million laws to try to control human behavior. But in contrast to the 35 million laws, God has given us 10 simple commandments. And unlike the unwise and sometimes unjust and defective laws that man makes, God's law governs all human behavior at the heart level, which is where it matters the most. And the Bible says concerning His law that it's perfect, converting the soul. Write these scriptures down. Psalms 19 verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. In other words, it's a perfect law. It can't be, it can't be made better. It's already per- perfect to begin with. And then it says in Romans 7 verse 12 that God's law is holy, it's just, and it's good. It's a good law. It's a holy law. It's just, which means it's fair and righteous. And then in James chapter 2 verse 12 says that we're going to be judged by the law of what? Not the law of bondage, friends, but the law of liberty. That's important to remember because, you know, there are some people, even Christians, that look upon the Ten Commandments as a bunch of legalistic requirements that hold us in bondage. But no, friends, the New Testament tells us that God's law is the law of liberty. When you look at the Ten Commandments, they are ten principles of freedom. When you go down the list and read the Ten Commandments, God gave every single one of them not to restrict us, but to protect us that we might experience liberty and freedom. I want us to notice. Let's summarize the Ten Commandments. When you go home, you can read it. It's found in Exodus chapter 20. Please write that down. Exodus 20, go home. we got some homework tonight. Read the whole Ten Commandments again. God came and He spoke on Mount Sinai and He said, Commandment number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now that's a reasonable command. In this command, God is saying that we need to put Him first as the priority of our lives and not worship any other God before Him because He is the one true God. Any other God that people worship is a false God that does not deserve or is not worthy of our worship, our service, and our hearts. God says, put me first. And friends, tell me, is God worthy of first place in our lives? Yes or no? And why is that? Why is He worthy of number one priority, first place in our lives? Because He made us, amen? We wouldn't have our life if it wasn't for Him. He is our maker, our creator. He is the sustainer of our lives. But there's an even better reason or another reason why God is worthy of first place in our lives. And that is this. Because he put, him, he put us first place in his life. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, friends. They tempted him. They said, save yourself and then we'll believe. And let me tell you, friends, Jesus could have saved himself. He could have jumped off the cross and saved himself, but Jesus could not save himself and us at the same time. So when it came between saving himself and saving us, he chose us before himself. He put you 
as the priority. He puts you before himself. Are you thankful for that? Who are you? And who am I that God would put us before himself? That's how much he loves us. Amen. Therefore, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You see, when we understand what Jesus did for us, that's a commandment that's easy to follow. The Lord pours out his love in our hearts. And as a result of understanding that he put us first, we're going to want to put him first too in our lives. Amen? So that's the first commandment. The second is similar. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. God does not want us to worship statues and idols and pictures. Now this commandment is not the forbidding of making images in and of itself, but rather the revering or the worshiping of those images. God wants us to live by faith. There's nothing in this world that, that, that can contain the infinite one. And so in this commandment, don't bow down and worship idols and whatnot. God is, again, wanting us to put him first. And, you know, there are many kinds of idols in the world today. There are idols of wood and idols of stone and idols of metal. And many people are bowing down and uh, lighting incense and praying and worshiping idols. And, uh, you know, here, most people are not accustomed to worshiping that kind of idols. But there are different kinds of idols, friends. We also have American idols. Isn't that right? We make idols out of people. Idols out of the movie stars and the sports stars and the music stars. My friends, you may not literally bow down and worship those people, but if they're more important to you than God, then you're putting them in the place where only God deserves, and that's a form of false worship. And by the way, friends, you can make an idol out of anything. You can make an idol out of your job and your profession. You can make an idol out of your money and your bank account. You can make an idol out of your spouse or your children. My friends, whatever is most important in your life is your God, no matter what you profess. You may not be literally bowing down and lighting incense and worshiping that thing, but whatever is the most important thing in your life is your God, and God wants us to put him in that place. Can you say amen? The third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. God does not want us to use his holy name carelessly in cursing and swearing and whatnot. But, you know, there's another way people take the name of the Lord in vain and they don't curse. And that is this. When we call ourselves Christians, we're taking God's name upon ourselves. But if we're not living the life of Christ, we're taking his name in vain. You see, the commandment is much more than the outward actions. It governs the way we live in our, in our hearts, friends. Then the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. Here, friends, God says he wants us to remember him on the Sabbath day. And friends, this is an amazing commandment. God is not too big and not too busy to want to spend quality time with us every single week. That's amazing, isn't it? You know, some people say, well, I, man, I just, I just got too much going on. I'm just too busy. I can't remember that commandment. Well, friends, no one's busier than God. <laughs> and yet God wants to spend that quality time with us. It's a beautiful commandment. Commandment number five, honor thy father and thy mother. Any parents want to get rid of this commandment? Oh, we need more of this one, don't we? We need to honor our father and our mother. But friends, remember, the Bible also says in Ephesians 6, honor thy father and thy mother in the Lord. 
So if father and mother asks you to do something that violates God's word, Bible says we ought to obey God rather than men. And then commandment number six, thou shalt not kill. But it's much more than the outward act. Jesus said if, if you have anger in your heart against your brother without a cause, you've already murdered him in your heart. There are a lot of murderers that go to church. There's a lot of murderers in the world. They may not have taken someone's physical life, but that, that wrath and that rage and that anger and that hatred is breaking this commandment. You see, the commandment governs not only the outward acts, but the intentions of the heart. Commandment number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus is trying to protect the home and relationships and families, and it's more than the outward act because Jesus said, if you have lust, you've already committed adultery. The commandment governs the intentions of the heart. Commandment number eight, thou shalt not steal. Can you imagine if everyone kept that commandment? You wouldn't have to carry keys in your pocket anymore. You never have to lock your doors. You have to worry about anything. Imagine if everyone kept the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. There will be no broken homes and broken marriages and broken lives and children growing up insecure, confused with dysfunction. If everyone kept the commandment, thou shalt not kill, there will be no wars and, 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 and violence and all of these things. We would live in a peaceful world if everyone kept the law. This is Revelation's answer for global peace. Commandment number nine, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. God wants us to tell the truth all the time. This commandment is God's way of protecting the truth. Commandment number ten, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. God wants us to be content with that which he has given us and stop envying and desiring that which does not belong to us. And friends, we can be content with just Jesus. Jesus is enough. Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain. Amen? So this is the Ten Commandments, God's perfect law of liberty. Every single one of them was given not to restrict us, but to protect us. When God says, thou shalt not kill, what is he trying to protect? What is he trying to protect in the commandment, thou shalt not kill? He's trying to protect your life. Thou shalt not steal. What is he trying to protect? Your property. Thou shalt not commit adultery. What is he trying to protect? The family and the relationships. Remember the Sabbath. What is he trying to protect? The sacredness of time. You go down the list, every commandment is not a restriction, really. It is a principle of freedom. And so God spoke his law on Mount Sinai, but then not wanting to trust frail human memory with the exact wording of his law, God sought necessary to write it down with his own finger on tablets of stone. In Exodus 31, 18, Bible says that he wrote it with his own finger on tablets of stone. And friends, you'll find it interesting that of, that, uh, of everything in the Bible, this is the only thing, the Ten Commandments is the only thing that God did not trust man to write. You see, everything else he inspired the prophets to write. He inspired them through the Holy Spirit. But when it came to the Ten Commandments, God wrote that himself, which shows that his law is very, very important. And he wrote it on tables of stone. What do, what do people mean when they say it's written in stone? It, it means it's permanent and it cannot be changed. And though this was the first time God gave his law in written form, we have to understand, friends, that God's law existed way before then. In fact, God's law is an eternal law because it is a reflection of God's eternal character of love. 
God's law is the law of love because God is love. And that law is a reflection of God's eternal character of love. Now, some people might be scratching their heads and wondering, well, how do we know that the Ten Commandments existed before Mount Sinai? How do we know that? Well, friends, it's very simple. Notice what the Bible says in Romans 4, verse 15. Romans 4.15 says, where there is no law, there is no what? Transgression. So no law, no transgression. Therefore, if there is a law, then, then there's something to transgress against. But if there's no law, there's nothing to transgress. What is transgression? Write it down. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says, whoever commits sin transgresses the what? Law for sin is the transgression or the breaking or the violating of the law. This is the clearest biblical textbook definition of sin. It is the breaking, the violating, the transgressing of the law. So it makes sense. If there is no law, there's nothing to violate. Where there is no law, there is no sin. And so how do we know the law existed before Mount Sinai? We just have to ask the question, did sin exist before Mount Sinai? Yes or no? Yes, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve partook of that fruit, did they sin, yes or no? God said, if you partake of this fruit, you will surely die. Why? Because, not because the fruit was poisonous. God didn't create a poisonous fruit. It's because the wages of sin is death. God made it clear that in violating his word, his law results in death. And in principle, Adam and Eve broke the Ten Commandments when they partook of that fruit. They stole something that didn't belong to them. They were committing spiritual adultery against the Lord. They were coveting that which was not theirs. They were breaking God's law, and this rebellious tendency was passed down to their children. And the Bible says the first sibling rivalry, Cain and Abel, that Cain murdered his brother Abel. Now, when Cain did that, did Cain sin, yes or no? Yes, he broke the commandment, thou shalt not kill. And so if sin existed before Mount Sinai, then the law had to exist too. Because where there's no law, there is no sin. Are you with me, yes or no? The reason why that needs to be emphasized is because there are many Christians who are teaching and believing that the law was just for the Jews. That it was just for the Israelite nation. But friends, the law existed before a Jew ever existed. It is an eternal law for all humanity. In fact, notice another example. Genesis 26, verse 5, because that Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Bible says that Abraham was a commandment keeper. He lived before Moses' time. He lived before the, 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 the time of Mount Sinai, and he was a commandment keeper. Very clear. So we see, friends, that in the Old Testament, God's law was the standard for right and wrong. But the real question tonight is this. What about the New Testament? Because that's the time period that we're living in. What about the New Testament dispensation? Is God's law still important for us today? Some people think that those, who live, those of us who live in the New Testament don't have to worry about the law. But let's see if that's the case. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to what? To fulfill. Jesus said, don't even think about it. I am not come to destroy it but rather to fulfill it. For verily, verily, I say unto thee, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be, what is that word? 
fulfilled. And that word fulfilled doesn't mean to destroy or to get rid of or to change. The word fulfilled, friends, means to fill to the full. In the original Greek, it, it, it means to live it out, to fill it to its fullness, or to establish it more fully. Jesus did not come to destroy it, but rather to fulfill it, fill it to its full, thus establishing it more fully. How did he do that? Listen carefully. The law, the letter of the law says, thou shalt not kill. But when Jesus came, he came to fulfill that law, filling it to its full measure by saying that if you're angry and have hatred in your heart, you've already murdered. He's filling that commandment to its fullness. He's showing that the commandment not only governs the outward act of murder, but the inward intention of anger and hatred. He is filling it to its full. Does that make sense? The letter of the law says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus says, if you have lust, you've already committed adultery. He's filling that commandment to its full, establishing it more fully. He's basically saying that it's more than the outward act of adultery, but it's the inward intention of, uh, in your heart when you have lust. Now listen, friends, Jesus is not saying that you can go ahead and break the letter of the law as long as you keep the spirit of the law. Some people think that. You know, we keep the spirit of the law, so we don't have to worry about the letter of the law. You know what that means? That's like saying, I can go ahead and kill you as long as I don't, I'm not angry when I do it. <laughs> I can go ahead and commit adultery as long as I'm not lusting while I do it. It doesn't make any sense, friends. You see, listen, you can keep the letter of the law and break the spirit of the law. You can not murder someone and yet still be angry and have hatred in your heart. So you can keep the letter and still break the spirit. But you cannot truly keep the spirit of the law without also keeping the letter of the law too. Can you say amen? Jesus came to fulfill it, to fill it to its full measure, thus establishing it more fully. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Some, many people agree on that. They say, yes, Jesus came to live out that law in his life, but then he abolished or changed it in his death. Some people say that when Jesus died, he nailed the law to the cross. He changed it or he destroyed it. Was that the reason Jesus died? Did Jesus die to free us from the law? Why did Jesus die, friends? Bible says in Matthew 1.21, you shall call his name Jesus. And that word is beautiful. It means Savior. But what did he save us from? It says, for he shall save his people from the law. Is that what it says? Well, friends, you ought to have a more violent reaction than that. Jesus didn't come to save us from the law. Oh, let's try it again. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people in their sins. <laughs> did Jesus come to save us in sin? What did he do? Save us what? From sin. And what is sin? 1 John 3, 4. It is the breaking, the violating, the transgression of the law. Jesus did not come from the, to save us from the law. He came to save us from the violation, the breaking of the law, and the results of death that it would bring. And so Jesus did not come to abolish the law. But we know that there is a law that is no longer necessary for us to follow because Jesus died. But it wasn't the Ten Commandments. Well, which law was it? It's the law described in Ephesians 2, verse 15. It says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in what? Ordinances. So which law was abolished when Jesus would come in the flesh? It was the one that was contained in ordinances. And another word for ordinance is ceremonies. It was the, it was the ceremonial law that, that 
was abolished at the cross. That's the law that is no longer necessary because, of the, because the purpose of the law was to teach us about the mission of Messiah. In fact, notice in Hebrews verse chapter, uh, excuse me, Hebrews 9, chap chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then indeed even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Now, I wish we had the time to get into that sanctuary a little bit more than we have. But we remember, I, I mentioned the other night, the sanctuary was the center of the sacrificial services. In the Old Testament times, if a sinner wanted to be forgiven of their sin, they would have to go to the sanctuary and sacrifice a, 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 an animal to the Lord. The animal had to die so that guilty man could live, and every animal that was slain had to be perfect because it would represent the perfection and holiness of Jesus who was without sin, and yet he would die for the sins of the world. And so everything that was connected with that earthly sanctuary, these were the ordinances, the ceremonies that are no longer necessary to keep because it points us to Jesus. Colossians chapter 2 verse 14 says, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to, to us, took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Why were these ceremonial ordinances nailed to the cross and, and, and finished? Because the whole purpose of those things was to point the, the, the Jewish nation, the people of God, to who the Messiah was so that when he would come, they would recognize him as the one that all the types and the ceremonies were pointing to. That's the point, friends. And remember when Jesus was on the cross, before he breathed his last, Jesus said three words. It is finished. And then the veil of that earthly temple was torn from top to bottom, signifying a finishing of the sacrificial ceremonial laws. And friends, you ought to praise God for that, that Jesus came and finished that Old Testament uh, sacrificial service, those ceremonies. I'm so grateful that because of Jesus, I don't have to slay a lamb to be forgiven. All I got to do is get on my knees and say, Jesus, have mercy upon me. I've broken your law. I've spoken lies. I've lived a life unworthy of you. Please cleanse me with your blood. And we don't have to go through an earthly priest. We have a great high priest in heaven. Jesus is not only the lamb that died for us. He is the great high priest that ever lives for us. And if you're thankful for that, would you please say amen. So we have to remember, friends, that the, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, was totally a distinctive and different law than the ceremonial laws that were finished in Christ. Two different laws. Sometimes people get mixed up and they get confused because they mix those two laws together. But they're two separate institutions. But some people say, but yeah, Ten Commandments are, are important, but, but you don't have to worry about that because Jesus gave us some new commandments. He told us that all we need to do is love. Well, what did Jesus really say? Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40, Jesus said to him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. But friends, when Jesus said that, it wasn't anything new. When he said that, he was actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. From the beginning, the Lord wanted his people to love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's something that he always wanted his people to do. It wasn't new, friends. It was perhaps new to them because they forgot in the importance of that reality. And then he said, the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
But that wasn't anything new. When Jesus said that, he was quoting from Leviticus 19, verse 18. It was nothing new. God, from the beginning, always wanted us to love our neighbors as ourselves. But people read it right there. They say, there you have it. All you have to do is love God and love your neighbor. But friends, it would be well for us to read the rest of the verse. The rest of the verse says, on these two commandments hang what? All the law and the prophets. Our friends, Jesus is not replacing the law, all the law, with these two commandments. But rather, he is showing that all the law and the prophets can only be accomplished with these two commandments. Love for God and love for our neighbor. It's just like we got two hands, right? Go ahead and put up, put up your two hands. We're not going to fight. We're just going to illustrate. These are the two laws. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And these two hands hold up how many fingers? Ten fingers. The rest of the Ten Commandments. What Jesus is saying is, the only way you can keep the Ten Commandments is if you first have these two commandments. Love for God and love for your neighbor. My, my friends, you can't have ten fingers unless you first have two hands. If you don't have two hands, you don't have ten fingers. Because the fingers are attached to the hands. No hands, no fingers, right? What Christ is saying is that the only way you can keep the ten commandments is if you love God and love your neighbor. Because the first part of the commandments show you how you love God or the way in which you show your love for God. If we truly love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we will keep the first part of the commandments. We will have no other gods before him. We will not bow down and worship idols. We will not take God's name in vain. And we will remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And if we truly love our neighbor as ourselves, we will keep the second part of the law. We are going to honor our father and mother. We are not going to kill or commit adultery or steal or lie or covet our neighbor's possession. On these two hands, there are ten fingers. On these two principles of love, hold up the rest of the Ten Commandments. Jesus is saying, friends, that His law is a law of love. And just like what Paul said in Romans 13.10, love is the fulfilling of the law, the establishing of the law, the carrying out of that law. It's only by the power of love. Friends, if that makes sense, would you please say amen? So every time you see your hands... You see God's law of love right there. Amen? I hope you never look at your hands the same ever again. You find God's law written there in your members. Jesus said it like this. John 14, 15. If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. That's what Jesus says explicitly. But what he's saying implicitly in the passage is that if you don't love me, you're not going to keep the commandments. You see, love is the motivating power that enables us to obey God's law. We don't have the strength or the desire to do it in and of ourselves, friends. The Bible says that the, the carnal mind, is that the, the natural man, is at enmity against God's law. It's not sub subject to God's law, neither indeed can it be. That's why, friends, we need something far more stronger than willpower or self-determination we need the power of the love of God. Can you say amen? His law is a law of love. In fact, if you read this in the Greek, it's even stronger than English. In the Greek, it's, it's, it's better translated like this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because love is the power that, 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 that moves us 
to want to do the things that please the Lord. In other words, friends, love for Jesus always leads to obedience, never to disobedience. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? Remember that touching story in John chapter 8? That woman that committed adultery was caught in the very act. She had broken God's law and the scribes and Pharisees. They wanted to stone her to death. So they brought her to the temple, threw her down like a piece of trash at the feet of Jesus, and began to point their fingers and accuse her. She is guilty. She deserves to to die. And what they said was true. She was guilty, and the wages of sin is death. But Jesus looked upon this woman with eyes of love and infinite compassion. When everyone else wanted to get rid of her, Jesus would take her. Even though this woman had made a mess of her life, even though she had made terrible decisions and she had broken God's law, she found herself in that moment at the very best place she could be in the the entire universe. Because at the feet of Jesus, she was at the throne of grace. And Christ saw her not for who she was, but for what she could become by his grace and mercy. When everyone saw a dirty harlot, Jesus saw a beautiful daughter of God that was wrapped up in the devil's net. He saw that she wanted to be free, but she didn't know how. And so Jesus dealt with her accusers. He stooped down and began to write their sins in the ground. And then he said, whoever is without sin, go ahead and stone her. And every single one of those hypocrites dropped their rocks and walked away because they all recognized that they had sin and they were unworthy of pointing the finger. And friends, when everyone else walked away, Jesus remained. When everyone leaves you, Jesus will stay. Your spouse walks out on you. Your friends don't want to bother with you anymore. You're rejected even by church members. When no one else wants you, Jesus will take you. But there's another reason why Jesus didn't leave. It's because he was the only one without sin. Everyone left because they had sin. He remained. He was the only one without sin. And as the only one without sin, he was the only one that can throw throw a rock and stone this woman to death and still be just in doing so. And the only one that could rightfully condemn this woman said to her of what she says to us tonight when we fall at his feet in contrition and a desire for freedom. He said to her those beautiful words, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin some more. (laughs) Is that what Jesus said? Go and sin Listen, friends, the same Jesus that said, neither do I condemn you, is the same one that said, go and sin no more. That's the true gospel right there. Neither do I condemn you is pardon for the past. Go and sin no more is power for the present and promise for the future to live a brand new life. Many people are emphasizing, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Then there are others on the opposite extreme saying, you better go and sin no more. You better go and sin no more. And then you have no condemnation. 
Those are two extremes on either side of God's perfect character. It's liberalism and legalism. Both of them are a false gospel. But in the middle, God straightened out his true character. He's a God of justice and a God of mercy. A God that says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. My friends, God has promised us pardon for our past, promise for our present, a power for our present, and promise for our future. That's the true gospel of Jesus. Amen? It's a gospel of complete freedom and victory in Christ. So the love of Jesus does not excuse sin. It consumes it. It overcomes it. It conquers it. And that's what I want Jesus to do in my heart. Amen? Oh, listen, friends. Yes, we have a sinful, messed up, bent nature that is prone to wander, prone to leave. It's so easy for us to do the wrong thing. But Jesus said, the Lord Jesus promised us with men it's impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Amen? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus promises freedom for those who want it. I want it tonight. How about you? Amen? But some people think, but the law is just a bunch of legalistic requirements. It's just a bunch of legalism. Many people think that it's, it's just legalism. Well, friends, let me ask you a question. Is it legalistic to have stop signs and speed limits? Now, the purpose of those things, are they there to restrict us or to protect us? Now, it may feel restrictive when we're late for work, right? We may get angry at that stop sign and wish it wasn't there, and we'll feel like, man, that's just a bunch of legalism when we're late. But when you think about it rationally, those things are not there to restrict us. They're there to protect us. It's the same thing with God's law. It's not there to restrict us, but to protect us from the evil results of sin. Now, now here's another question. Here's my wife and I when we got married. How many of you are married? Can I see your hands? Come on, don't be ashamed. All right. Now, think about the marriage relationship. That is the most restrictive relationship in the world. Isn't that right? When a man loves a woman, says, I want to be with this woman, and when, when, the, the, when, the, when the bride and groom say, I do, to each other, you know what they're also saying? They're saying, I don't, to everyone else. Man, that's restrictive. That means I got to restrict myself to my spouse forever. I can't have anybody else. That's so restrictive. But you notice, when the bride and groom are standing at the altar, they're smiling about it. Usually. They're happy to do it. In fact, they spend lots of money on the wedding and they invite everyone to witness this restrictive commitment. And why are they happy to do it? One word, friends, love. Oh, love has the power to do amazing things in our lives. Amen? And so those of you who are married, is marriage restrictive? Is marriage bondage? Well, that depends on who you're married to. <laughs> But if there is love between you and your spouse, if there's love in that relationship, that marriage, that relationship is not restrictive. It's not bondage. It's freedom to experience a love that's pure and undefiled and blessed of the Lord. Can you say amen? 
You see, it's the same thing with God's law. If you don't have love for God, yes, that law is restrictive. It's bondage because it holds you back from fulfilling the selfish nature that you have. Yes, without love, it's restrictive. But when we love God because he first loved us, it's freedom. Amen? Love is what makes the difference. That's what the apostle said in 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. What is the love of God? That we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not what? They're not grievous. Another translation said, says it, it's not burdensome. You see, when we have love, it's not, a, it's, not a, it's not just a duty, it's a delight. It's not a burden, it's a blessing. So what we need to focus on is not trying to, try, trying to obey the law. What we need to focus on, friends, is learning to love Jesus. And we can only love him because he first loved us. So the focus is not on our obedience to the law, and our focus is not on our love to Christ. Our focus is on his love to us, and love awakens a love response. And when we experience that love, the law will be fulfilled as a natural result, because love is the fulfilling of the law. If that's clear, please say amen. And so, can the law save us? Absolutely not, friends. The law was not given to save anyone. We cannot save ourselves no matter how perfect we live. The Bible says that salvation is a gift. In Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible, it says, for by grace are you saved through what? Through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, salvation is a gift. It's not from ourselves if it was from ourselves, we could have something to boast about. But no, friends, it's a gift from God. And friends, if I give you a gift, what do you need to do for that gift to be yours? All you have to do is receive it. And that's what the salvation of the Lord is. It's a gift given by God. It's a gift of grace. We receive it by faith. Faith is the arm that grabs hold of the free gift of God's grace. And what is grace? It's pardon when we deserve condemnation. It's life when we deserve death. It's heaven when we deserve hell. Grace is the unmerited favor of the Lord. He is a gracious God and salvation is a gift that he wants to give all of us, those who receive it by faith. But some people say, yeah, those of us who live in the New Testament were saved by grace, but those who lived in the Old Testament were saved by keeping the law. That doesn't make sense, friends. Are there two methods of salvation? Those in the Old Testament saved by keeping the law. We in the New Testament saved by grace. No, friends. There's only one way to, to be saved, friends, and that is through Jesus. Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if that's the case, then what's the difference between those who live in the Old Testament dispensation and we who live in the New Testament dispensation? The difference is the expression of faith, but it's still faith in God's grace. Those who live in the Old Testament offered sacrifices as an expression of their faith in the coming sacrifice of Messiah. They were looking forward by faith to the cross. We in the New Testament, we look backwards by faith to what Jesus did for us at the cross. So those in the old and the new, we all meet together right there at the foot of the cross. And I'm so grateful that the ground is level at the foot of the cross and there's room enough for everybody at the foot of the cross. Can you say amen? There's a story of a little boy that got lost one day in, in, in the mall, in a huge mall, and he got separated from his, from his parent, and, 
and, and, and the security guard saw him and, and, and took him on the side and tried to call the parents on the intercom, but no one showed up, and the boy started getting uh, very afraid. He started crying. The hours went by, and the, the security guards were trying to help him. Uh, do you know where you live? Your address, perhaps. And he knew that he did not live too far away from the mall, but he didn't know his address. And, and, and they're asking, what about your, your phone number? He didn't know. And so the time went on, and no one came to pick him up. And finally, the little boy thought to himself, and he said to the security guard, you know, I don't remember my address, but I do remember that on the end of my street is a huge church. And on the roof of that church is a huge cross. And so he said, if you can just bring me to the cross, I can find my way home from there. And that's the truth with all of us, friends. We can't find our way back home to heaven. We don't have the ability. Oh, but if we can just make it to the cross, we'll make it home from there. Can you say amen? Salvation is a gift of grace. Well then, if the law doesn't save us, then why should we keep the law? Well, let me answer that question with a question. How many of you like mangoes? Anybody like mangoes? If you don't like mangoes, it's probably because you haven't had a Hawaiian mango. Oh, we got some good mangoes in Hawaii. I got a mango tree in my backyard. It bears fruit all year long, and I just love mangoes. Mangoes are wonderful fruit. But let me ask you, why does a mango tree grow mangoes? Our question is, why should we keep the law if the law doesn't save us? Well, why does a mango tree grow mangoes? Tell me, does a mango tree grow mangoes to prove that it's a mango tree? Does a mango tree grow mangoes to earn the right to be called a mango tree? course not. Well, then why does a mango tree grow mangoes? Simply because, you see, a mango tree grows mangoes because it is a mango tree. That was pretty profound, wasn't it? (laughs) But in the same way, friends, a Christian keeps the law not to prove that they're a Christian. A Christian keeps the law because they are a Christian. That's the Christ-like thing to do. A Christian doesn't keep the law to earn salvation. A Christian keeps the law because they have already received the free gift of salvation. And as a result of being rooted in that wonderful gift, the natural result is we're going to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, Galatians 5.22. And love is the fulfilling of the law. In other words, friends, obedience is the fruit. Salvation is the root. You can't have the fruit unless you first got the root. But when you got healthy roots, you got delicious fruits. Amen? And that's what obedience is. It's the natural result of being rooted and grounded in the love of God, in the salvation of the Lord. What's going to happen as a result is the fruits of the Spirit, the fruits of obedience to God. We keep the law not to be saved, but because we are saved. And that's what saved people do. It's the evidence of being in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We're not doing it to earn anything. We're doing it because we already received it. And that's the result. If that's clear, would you please say amen? Some people say, though, but didn't God do away with his law because of his grace? Does grace do away with God's law? And here's another misunderstood passage in Christendom today. The one in Romans 6.14, it says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under what? Under grace. And many people have read this passage, and they have completely misunderstood it, and they think that just because we're under grace means we don't have to keep the law. 
They say, we're not under the law, we're under grace. And they think that that means you don't have to keep the law because you're under grace. Well, is that what it says? Is that what it means? Well, let's read the next verse. What then, Paul said, shall we sin? Remind me, what is the biblical definition of sin? The transgression of the law, 1 John 3, 4. Shall we sin? Shall we transgress the law? Because we are not under the law but under grace, what's the answer? God forbid, in no way was Paul saying that just because we're under grace, we can go ahead and sin or break God's law. You see, it's good for us to read the context. So then, what is Paul saying then? What does it mean to be under the law and under grace? Well, the first part of the verse explains the second part of the verse. Paul is writing to believers, and he's saying that those who who believe were not under the law, were under grace. And if we're truly under grace, that means that sin, what is sin? The breaking of the law, transgression of the law. If we're under grace, that means that sin shall not have dominion over you. What is another word for dominion? Power. What else? Authority. Rulership. Control. My friends, if we're under grace, that means sin doesn't have power, rulership, authority, dominion over us. And friends, if sin does not have dominion over us, then that must mean it's because we have dominion over sin. If we have dominion over, that means we're overcoming sin. And if we're overcoming sin, that means it's because we're not breaking the law. Because sin is breaking the law. And if we're not breaking the law, it must be because we are keeping the law. And if we're keeping the law, it's because we're not under the law, but under grace. That's what it means, friends. Let the Bible speak for itself. You see, being under the law, it means that you're breaking the law because sin still has dominion and power over you. Being under the law means you're trying to keep that law in your own strength. But you can't do it, you're still breaking it because humanity doesn't have the power to do it in and of itself. That's what it means to be under the law. You're under the condemnation of that law because you're breaking it because sin has power over you. But being under grace, thank the Lord, means the exact opposite. Being under grace means that sin no longer has dominion over us because we're keeping the law through the power of grace. That's what it means. If that's clear, please say amen. Because grace is not only a pardon word, it's a power word. Romans chapter 1 verse 5 says, Through him, talking about Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. So God gives us grace not only to pardon our past, but he gives us grace to give us power to live a life of loving obedience to God. In other words, friends, grace always leads to obedience. Never does it lead to disobedience. When people make God's grace a license to continue to break God's law, that grace becomes disgrace. And they're treating cheaply that which has been purchased at the most expensive price. My friends, you know what grace is? The greatest demonstration of God's grace is the cross. And grace is an acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense. How much does God's grace cost us? It's free. But how much did it cost Jesus? Everything. And Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. All of heaven was emptied 
in the gift of Jesus Christ. And friends, when we take that expensive gift and use it as a license to break that holy law, that is like spitting on the cross. And my friends, let's never do anything like that. Let's honor and, and, and cherish this precious gift and esteem it in its rightful place. Can you say amen? But you know, some people say, you don't have to worry about the works of the law. Just have faith. Just believe and you'll be saved. Well, Paul knew that some people would try to cheapen faith. And so therefore he wrote in Romans 3 verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? In other words, just because we have faith, does that mean we can void out God's law? What's the answer? God forbid, yea, we what? Establish the law. In other words, if we truly have faith, we're not going to avoid it. We're going to establish the law. That's the same thing as fulfill, to establish more fully. Because true faith has power to do work. The Bible says in James 2.26, faith without works is what? A dead faith. We don't want a dead faith. We want a living faith. How many of you want a living faith? Uh, a living faith is alive, and thus it has works. Faith without dead, or excuse me, faith without works is dead. Therefore, faith with works is alive. But what makes our faith alive? Galatians 5, 6, faith that works by what? Love, friends. Love is the power that makes our faith alive. And as the result of a living faith, quickened by the love of Jesus, we will see the works of righteousness being fulfilled. Amen? Now, what is the role of God's law? We know that it doesn't save us. Well, then what is the role of God's law? Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of what? So, the law shows us what sin is. It tells us the difference between right and wrong. The law is the knowledge of sin. You can also write down James 1, verse 22 through 24, where it tells us that God's law is like a mirror. Like a what? And what is the purpose of a mirror? Every morning you wake up, before you leave the house, you look into the mirror, don't you? And why do you look into the mirror? What is the purpose of the mirror? The mirror only does one thing, friends. It reflects reality. The mirror doesn't lie. It always tells you the truth. Isn't that right? Now, you may not like reality, but you can't avoid it. The mirror reveals what reality really is. And God's law is like a mirror. It shows us the reality of our condition. And so to illustrate this very quick, I'm going to come back here where no one can see me. And then while I'm back here, I'm going to break God's law. And so you need to be praying for me. As I'm breaking God's law back here, I'm sinning. Don't gossip, just pray. All right, I'm finished breaking God's law. I'm going to come back out here, and uh, we're going to finish the message so we can go home tonight. What's wrong? Why are you laughing? What's wrong? Is there something wrong with me? Am I presentable? Yes or no? No? Do I look okay? Don't I look good? You're telling me I'm, I don't look good, huh? Well, you don't look so good yourself. <laughs> Who are you to judge me? You can't judge me. I'm all right. Nothing wrong with me. Is there something wrong with me, though? But I, I'm blinded to my condition. I can't see my condition. I don't know that there's something wrong. So what do I need right now to help me see 
my condition. What do I need? I need a mirror. And so thank God I got a mirror up here, and God's law is like a mirror. So I take the mirror, and I look into the mirror. I look into God's law, and wow, the law of God shows me that I got sin in my life. The law of God reveals the selfishness, the hypocrisy, the inconsistencies of my lives. The law shows me that I'm dirty, that my life is not in harmony with the pure, perfect, holy law. And now that I see my sinful condition, what do I do? Do I get rid of the law because I didn't like what it told me about myself? If I get rid of the law, is that going to change my condition? No, friends, it's not going to change my... I'm still in the same condition even if I get rid of the law. So what do I do then? Do I try to take the law and clean myself with the law? The law can't clean me. Then what is the purpose of it? Simply to show me my need of cleansing. So now that I see my need, oh, I need help, I need cleansing. What do I do now? I put the law of God reverently aside, and what I do? I go to that which can clean me. I go to the blood of Jesus. And I say, Lord, forgive me. I've broken your law. I've sinned against you, my God. I've spoken lies. I've lived a life of selfishness. I've done some things, Lord, I'm ashamed of. Would you please cleanse me? Please have mercy upon me. Make me clean. What the law couldn't do, the blood is able to do. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath the flood lose all of their guilty stains. Let me tell you, friends, the blood of Jesus is the best Clorox to cleanse every stain of sin upon the garment of our lives. Friends, how do I look now? How do I look now? I look good? Am I all right? Well, I don't know if I'm all right. What do I need to do next? I need to go back to that law. And I examine my life again according to God's law, and, and I see that according to the law, my life is back in harmony with God's will. And as I look into this law, I, I see that, 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 that I'm doing a lot better, but there's still a little bit right over here. So I say, Lord, not only the big sins, the small ones too. Cleanse me, wash me thoroughly. And friends, God's law shows me that my life is back in harmony with the Lord. Can you say amen? The law doesn't clean us. It doesn't save us. It just shows our need of cleansing and salvation. That's the purpose, a schoolmaster to lead us to Jesus. If that's clear, say amen. Now, before we close, I need seven volunteers to come up quickly right over here, right on this side. Seven volunteers. I got one. All right. Thank you, Chris. Uh, I need six more now. Come on. Don't all jump up at once. Two, one, two, three. Come on, brother. Four, five. Okay, come. Six, one more. You're going to uh, make a line right here facing everyone. We got one, two, three, four, five, six. One more, please. All right, right up here. Thank you. Uh, you guys want to scoot down just a little bit? Scoot down. All right. Okay. One, two, three, four. Wait. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay, I got my seven volunteers. Don't they, don't they look handsome and beautiful? Let's give them a hand for volunteering. Okay. I'm going to give them new names. Actually, can you just scoot down a little bit more, a little bit more? Okay, I'm going to give them new names. I need you to help me to remember their names.
Okay, we'll start on this side. My dear sister here, her new name is the church. What is her name? So when I point to her, you're going to say church. And my sister here is the preacher. What is her name? Preacher. And my sister here is gospel. It means good news. So when I point to her, you're going to say gospel. Good news, gospel, same thing. My brother here is Jesus. What is his name? And my, my, my brother Chris here, he wants to be like Jesus. That's why he's coming to these meetings. So when I point to him, you're going to say and my brother here is Grace. What is his name? And my brother here, I'm so sorry, my brother, but he is sin. <laughs> but don't worry, man, we're all sinners. We're all sinners. <laughs> so at a point to him, you're going to say, and my brother here is the law. What is his name? Okay, let's see if you can remember. What's her name? Gospel. Come on, a little bit louder. Jesus, Grace, Sin, Law, so it goes like this. And by the way, you're the people, so when I point to you, you're going to say the people. You're the what? So it goes like this. Ready? The? Go to? To hear the? Preach the? Of? And about his? Which is pardoned for? Which is breaking the? Very good. But many say that God's Sorry, I made a mistake. That God's has been done away with. And that grace gives us license to break God's. And that Jesus did away with the. And that the is bondage. And that the law, law is legalistic. So we don't need the. Let's get rid of the. So law can have a seat. Let's give him a hand. So what happens next? Can we scoot down? Scoot down a little bit more. So what happens when we get rid of the law? Like what many churches are teaching. Here's what happens, friends. Are you ready? The? Come on now. The? Go to? To hear the? Preach the? Of? And about his? Which is pardoned for? Which is breaking the? What law? I don't see any law. <laughs> we nailed the law to the cross, remember? We got rid of the law. We don't need the law. And where there is no law, the Bible says there is no, because is the breaking of the law. Therefore, if there's no law, there's nothing to break. And if there's nothing to break, there's no such thing as, so sin can have a seat. Let's give him a hand. Let's go down. Let's go down. What happens next? The? Go to? To hear the? Preach the? Of? And about his? Which is pardoned for? There's no sin. If there's no law, there's no sin. And if there's no sin, then there's no need of? Because? Is pardoned for sin. But if we're not sinners, if we've not broken anything, then we don't need grace. Grace is irrelevant if there's no sin. No law, no sin, no sin, no need of grace. So grace can have a seat. Let's give him a hand. The? The? Go to? To hear the? Preach the? Of? And about his? If there is no grace, 
then the only logical explanation is that there is no because <laughs> jump the gun on me because Jesus is the source of grace so if there's an absence of grace the only logical explanation is there's, a, there's an absence of Jesus no grace it's because there's no Jesus because where, where Jesus is, their grace is. Amen? No grace, no Jesus. So what happens next? The? Go to? To hear the? Preach the? Of? No Jesus? No? And what does gospel mean? You see, if there's no Jesus, there's no good news, friends. It's only bad news without Jesus. If you don't have Jesus in your heart, in your home, in your marriage, it's bad news. No Jesus, no gospel. And friends, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine life without Jesus. No Jesus, no gospel. Gospel can have a seat. Let's give her a hand. The go-to to hear the preach about nothing and friends that's a sad reality that many pulpits of the world today many churches of the world today who have bought into that lie that God's law is no longer necessary the preacher gets up and preaches maybe one or two verses Rest of the time tells stories, makes people laugh, makes people jump and shout and clap and have a good time, but there's little substance in the presentation. Very little of the bread of life, a lot of, a lot of stories, a lot of other things, but very little substance coming from many pulpits of the world today. My friends, if the preacher is not preaching the gospel, if he's not sharing the whole message of salvation, then we don't need the so so you're fired <laughs> I know you never preach that but you can have a seat let's give her a hand <laughs> the go to for let's give her a hand <laughs> You get the point, friends? When you get rid of the law, then you don't see your true condition. Just like if I didn't have a mirror, I would be blinded to my sin. Get rid of the law. Without no law, there's no sin. No sin, no need of grace, Jesus, the gospel. You go down the line, why are we even here? But the fact that God's law is an eternal law still valid to this day Showing us the difference between right and wrong, ten principles of freedom, showing us our sin, and thus showing us our need of the grace of Jesus. Shows that there's a good reason why we're here tonight. Amen? The Bible gives some strong words concerning religious people who teach that there's no law. In 1 John 2 verse 4, we're almost finished. The Bible says, he that says, I know him 
and keeps not his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Friends, if someone says to you, oh, I know the Lord. I'm telling you, you don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments. It's all finished. The Bible calls that person a liar. No matter how educated that preacher may be, no matter how nice that person may be, if they're saying, yes, I know God, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, you don't have to keep the law. The Bible, friends, calls that person a liar. And there's no truth in them. And friends, I don't want to listen to a liar. I want to listen to one that tells the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Amen? And in contrast to the liars in the last days, God is going to have some people who will tell the truth about the gospel, about God's law that points us to Jesus, that law that is the standard of righteousness, a reflection of his character of love. These are individuals that are described in Revelation 14, 12. This is the last day people. It says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, God's end time saints. They not only have faith, they not only have works, but they have a faith that works because they love Jesus. And when those saints go marching into the kingdom of God, I want to be a part of that number. How about you? Amen. Here's a group of people that have been washed in the fountain of Jesus' blood. They've experienced the reality of the new covenant promise. They've not made God's grace a license to break the law, but the grace of God has empowered them to live out the principles of the law of love. And friends, that's the group of people that God is calling us to be a part of in these last days. How many want to be a part of that group? Now I want to close with one final story. A story about a slave that was being auctioned years ago. And he's standing there at the auction block in front of a crowd of people, and many people gathered at this auction, and they looked upon the slave before them, and they saw a strong young man, one that was a, a, a good investment, a hard worker. And so as the auctioneer was taking bids, the price kept getting higher and higher and higher. But the only problem was, as the slave was standing before the people, he kept shouting to the crowd, and he said to them, I will not work. I will not work. I will be no man's slave. But nonetheless, when people saw him, they saw a good investment. And so the price kept getting higher and higher and higher. And Finally, he was sold at an expensive price. The owner comes to claim his slave, and the slave says to the owner, I'm flattered that you'd pay such a high price for me, but like I said, I will not work. I will be no man's slave. And the owner says, don't worry, just, just come with me. And they get into the little horse and buggy, and they head down the road, and after a while, they started to pass this beautiful home, and the carriage stopped, and the owner pointed to the home. It was a very nice home. And he looked at the slave and he said, this is now where you can stay. This is where you can stay. And when that slave looked at that home, it did not look like the quarters of a slave. It looked more like the home of a, of a son. He looked at that house and he said to the owner, I'm flattered that you'd do such a thing for me. But like I said before, I will not work. I will not work. I will be no man's slave. And the owner looks into the eyes of the slave, and he says, I bought you. I paid an expensive price. I paid more than anyone else was willing to pay. And I bought you not so that you can become my slave. I bought you to set you free. 
you're free. You're free. The slave gets out of that carriage. He's standing there in shock. He can't understand what had just happened to him. He had been set free, and not only that, he had inherited this beautiful, comfortable home. And as that slave is standing there, he's overwhelmed by the kindness and the compassion and the love and the grace that this stranger had shown him. He is so overwhelmed, the tears begin to flow, and then he chases that carriage, man, that, that carriage down, and he stops the man that had just set him free. And he says to him, sir, if you bought me to set me free, then I will serve you for the rest of my life. If you bought me to free me, then I am yours forever. What made the difference? At first, he said, I will not work, but now he's ready to serve for the rest of his life. What made the difference, friends? Grace. Love. And friends, this story is a story that each one of us ought to be able to relate with. Because the reality is, is that we're all slaves to a selfish, sinful nature. We are slaves and we cannot free ourselves. But let me tell you, friends, around 2,000 years ago, there was someone that bought us. He paid more than anyone else was willing to pay. He bought us at an expensive price. Not with corruptible things like silver and gold, but he purchased us with the gold of his blood and the silver of his tears. Jesus bought us, not so that we could become his slave and do whatever he wants us to do. He bought us to free us, to free us from sin, to free us from alcohol, to free us from drugs, to free us from the guilt and the shame of our past, to free us from lust to free us from anger and bitterness and resentment and doubt and worries and worldliness. Jesus purchased us at the most expensive price to make us free. And because of the great love and mercy and compassion that he had bestowed upon us, I want to say to Jesus, like that slave said to his owner, Lord, if you bought me to free me, then I want to serve you for the rest of my life. If you bought me to free me, and I'm yours forever. Is that your prayer tonight? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved and freed a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Then the next course verse says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Fear? Fear God and keep His commandments. What teaches our hearts to fear God and keep His commandments? It was grace that taught my heart to fear. And grace, my fears, relieved. Why? Because we don't keep God's commandments because we're afraid of the fire. We don't do it because we're trying to earn salvation. No, friends, we do it because we love Jesus, because perfect love casts out fear. That's the gospel of Jesus. It is Revelation's answer for global peace. Tonight, friends, you may have come to this meeting a slave to sin, a slave to drugs or alcohol, a slave to whatever you fill in the blank. But I beg you in Jesus' name, you may have come here as a slave, but don't leave here as one. Accept the freedom that Jesus offers tonight.
if you want to be free from your burden of sin, there's power in the blood. If you want to be free to do service to Jesus, your King, there's power in the blood. And if there's something in your life that has held you back, some cherished secret sin in your life that is robbing you from the peace of heaven, and tonight you want to lay it down at Jesus' feet, you want to let it go, you want God to take it from you and wash you of it, and you want God to write His holy law in your heart and in your mind that your obedience may come from a response of love to Him. If you want to experience the reality of the good news gospel message we've learned tonight, then I want to invite you right where you are to go to your knees. And let us bow down before the holy, righteous King above in a posture of humility, a posture of gratitude and thanksgiving for what He has done for us. If you'd like to receive that in your life, you want to be free. If you're able to kneel, go ahead and kneel. If you can't kneel because your knees are weak, just kneel in your heart. God sees. And let's receive the grace of God as we close tonight. Oh, Lord, we bow down before your holy and righteous throne, recognizing our unworthiness, recognizing our wretchedness, our wickedness, our sinfulness. Lord, we have broken your law. We have lived selfish lives. In fact, Lord, even our good deeds are tainted with pride and selfishness. And Father, we recognize that we don't have the strength to free ourselves. We don't have the power to change our own hearts. Lord, we can't even muster up love for you. But Lord, we also believe that Jesus paid it all. You came down from heaven to earth and you lived out the law of love perfectly. Then you died a vicarious death in our place, thus upholding the holy principles of the law and yet still able to provide mercy for the breakers of it. Lord, we open our hearts asking for that mercy, for that cleansing blood. Thank you that salvation is a gift of grace. Give us now the faith to receive it. And we pray, Lord, that you would root us in that gift and that as a natural result, that we would bear the fruit of the Spirit, the fruits of righteousness, that we will fear God, respect and reverence the ways of God because we love you. Oh, would you write your law in our hearts and minds, dear, God, dear Lord? Fulfill the new covenant promise you made to us. Make us your children. Make us your people. And Lord, because you bought us to make us free, tonight, Lord, we want to serve you for the rest of our lives. So take our hearts and thank you for the wonderful freedom we have this evening. We claim it. We receive it. We believe it by your grace in the name of Jesus Christ, we, we say that all of God's children say, Amen. Amen.